Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. Hello, I'm Scott Postman, your host, and I'm joined by Joffrey Swade, our co-host and academic advisor, and we have a guest in the house today, Joffrey. Welcome, Mitch Stokes. We're going to talk math and humanities. Yeah. Mitch, good to have you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Well, Mitch is a senior fellow of philosophy at New St. Andrews College, and he received his Ph.D. in philosophy from Notre Dame and an M.A. in religion from Yale. He also holds a master's in uh, mechanical engineering, and prior to his teaching career, he worked for an international engineering firm where he earned five patents in aero derivative gas turbine technology. Did I say all that right? I think so. So uh, I didn't write that. (laughs) Uh, No, seriously, it's good to have you, uh, Nick. And when you were at Notre Dame, you studied under Alvin Plantanka, is that right? Plantanka, yeah. Plantanka. Alvin Plantanka. Okay. I have to learn how to say those names right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember, uh, I don't even recall the title of the book, uh, but it was a very refreshing work. One of the first works I read uh, by Alvin that was really good. Okay, yeah. So he's amazing. Yeah. Well, Mitch, you have written obviously um, quite a bit in um, on the the scientific revolution. You've written a couple of uh, scientific uh, biographies, and of course, a calculus textbook. We're going to talk about in a few minutes. But can you tell us a little bit about you besides this professional bio? What our listeners might know about Mitch. Let's see how not to get the elders involved here. Uh, Um, Well, this is kind of related to the career, but um, something that not a lot of people know. When I was in high school, um, I basically didn't study at all and just goofed off and surfed and skateboarded and um, had had such bad grades, I had to go to a community college at first. And uh, even then didn't, it was Daytona Beach Community College, so mm. I still surfed, and I <laughs> flunked out of my first algebra course. It was a remedial Ooh. algebra course mm. at the community yeah. college, and I re- that, that same term, I had a public speaking course. And I remember going there like, this is going to be so easy. And they <laughs> gave a first assignment next, you know, come in and, uh, you know, just talk five minutes about something that, you know, and I was like, I totally got this. And I came in and I stood up in front of everyone and went blank. <laughs> it was the most uncomfortable any of those people had ever been. <laughs> <laughs> and it was certainly uncomfortable for me. And I just remember kind of the, the teacher kind of co- coaxing me through it. And finally I just kind of, crashed and burned and sat down the moment that class was over i went and dropped the class so that same that semester i crashed and burned in a public speaking course and failed a math basic math course (laughs) Mm. now i'm that's all the requirement you need to be public speaking on mathematics for your career. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. After we've heard Joffrey's testimony and my testimony about our younger days in education and now your testimony, we might be telling (laughs) you. Yeah, yeah, it might might not be a great message that we're getting out there. (laughs) Hey, just wait till you grow up and then get educated. Gather you rosebuds while you may. (laughs) Actually, just don't do what we do. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, well one of the things I said, just to kind of stay on this topic uh, uh, for a moment longer, Scott, um, one of the things I mentioned when I was talking about my own testimony uh, was that I'm still dealing with, you know, some of the difficulties of, uh, of my academic career when young, you know, I mean, yeah. we've gone ahead and built, built my life. Uh, but you know, it, you don't get off scot-free. No. And, and that's about what I was going to say is, you know, you play a lifetime of catch up if you don't do it right in the beginning. So yeah, yeah it's, it's hard work. So, well, maybe talk a little bit about some of the biographies you, you, you wrote about some particular people, um, before you're writing a calculus textbook, why, why these people tell us who and why? Yeah. So, um, the two biographies, one, they're mostly intellectual biographies on, uh, two Christians from the past, but who are also part of the scientific revolution, uh, Galileo and Isaac Newton. Mm-hmm. Um, just here, here's another, an aside, my, what I really, really care about is philosophy. I got into philosophy through apologetics, wanting to think more holistically, organically about Mm -hmm. how the Christian worldview fits together, how all of it fits together because I think that in and of itself, even if you don't have an apologetic per se, like here's the cosmological argument or here's the, here are some evidences from scripture that show its reliability. If you have this big picture in place, to me, that's the much more powerful kind of, yeah. And and it's not, it's not just so that you can have an apologetic. It's so that you understand and have wisdom and know it's it's a lot it's very satisfying obviously to understand the big picture so i anyways all that to say it people will look at the kinds of things that i write you know i'll write about philosophy i'll write about apologetics i'll write about mathematics or science and it just seems kind of odd even coming from engineering i used to be an engineer when I left engineering to go back to philosophy, you know, the, the blank stares that yeah. I got, you know, well, I'm going to go back to do that. You know, it's like, uh, I'm going to go back and, uh, you know, I, I want to go into philosophy for the money. Right. I mean, that's the, <laughs> but it was really just the people didn't understand going from, and, and I'm always having to explain, you know, why philosophy from engineering, but it's actually, you'd be surprised at how much it all fits together. And I didn't go looking for this. You know, I didn't go looking for how science and mathematics fits in with philosophy and the liberal arts and all of that. It just kind of came together. In fact, while I was an engineer, while I was, um, I think I was finishing my master's or maybe I just finished my master's in engineering for whatever reason. I mean, maybe the Lord just struck me with lightning. It was I started reading um, about Mortimer Adler mm-hmm. and the great books and yeah. the Chicago program and all of that. Had never heard of classical Christian education or anything. I just, so I, I have entered into this um, interest in education through Mortimer Adler and realizing my own truncated education. Right. Well, it's really interesting because you, you, you started to, you talked about wisdom a few minutes ago, just, just back in, in terms of how this holistic, you know, what we might call an integrated understanding. And, and I don't, 
necessarily always like the word worldview because of the limitations of that of that word. But what you're talking about is having this Christian, you know, uh, worldview. But I like the word wisdom better because it it gives us that holistic understanding that you know it's not a bunch of rules or a particular perspective, but understanding you know how does Christianity inform everything? It's all one truth, right? You know, in in terms of those different things that you write about. Well, you know, there's still something pretty unique happening uh, with Dr. Stokes' work and with with this this textbook in particular in the course that's offered on Kepler that uses uh, this textbook calculus for everyone. And that is, you know, we were classical educators. We're constantly talking about integration, yep. but the fact is that there's one aisle that's too wide to cross, right? We'll integrate philosophy and history all day long. Mm-hmm. Right. But that, you know, what you mentioned that the, the, the shock that, that, that people showed when you, you were crossing over from engineering to philosophy, which should be far more natural than it is, right? That, that, that chasm seems too great to bridge. And yet this is something that you're passionate about. Yeah. And the, um, what's ironic. And, and I, again, I didn't go looking for this. If you look at the history of the liberal arts, go, go all the way back to its source in Plato and you see the, so in, in Plato's Republic, he lays out the education for the philosopher kings for mm-hmm. this perfect utopian um, city-state. And when he's laying out this education for the these leaders, he lays out, he actually introduces into Western culture the quadrivium, which are what's later called the quadrivium, the four... Um, Four of the seven traditional liberal arts, mm-hmm. and it's geometry, arithmetic, astronomy, and harmony or music. You think that where did that where did that come from? You know, I mean, like here's here's this philosopher, you know, and basically, and it's not just a philosopher; it's kind of like the philosopher. And he's uh, Whitehead said one time, um, Alfred North Whitehead said uh, famously that all of European philosophy is but a footnote to Plato. And there really is something to that. Sure. You know, there's something where he just, for how, whatever happened, he identified so many of the questions and answered them in really unique ways that were set the agenda for the West. Like even for the, even for the Christians, you get Augustine taking, you know, basically, a, you know, taking that in and, and you, seeing Christianity through that in a sense or vice versa. And so that's where we, you know, our liberal arts come from this, you know, from the, the, the headwaters of philosophy. But so there's seven, if there's seven traditional liberal arts, I mean, I don't think we should be tied to those seven, but there's something, um, instructional about yeah, the sure. seven There's something fundamental anyway yeah and so you have the trivium right the 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 language arts and basically teach you the the languages how to reason how to communicate and all of that and then all of a sudden out of nowhere it seems you have the pythagorean division of mathematics and plato was a pythagorean he was trained you know we know that he we're, we're always we're very familiar with the fact that he Socrates was his teacher, but we're not so familiar with the fact that he was really really influenced by the Pythagoreans. Had lots of interaction with uh, interactions with them politically, and they trained him in many ways. And so he's accommodating that Pythagorean view. So at the very beginning of the liberal arts, you have 
four sevenths of it being mathematics. Mm. Now it's that's odd for all kinds of reasons. They thought of mathematics differently than we do now. Not so much the content, though that's true to to some degree, but also its purpose. Mm-hmm. But this all that to say that these two cultures that um, C.P. Snow writes about um, in the 50s, lamenting that the sciences and the humanities don't know each other's what, what do you suppose, do you have a, um, do you have any thoughts on, you know, where, where did this bifurcation begin in, in terms of if it was so integrated from the very beginning and, and they thought of it naturally as, as being married, um, how did this divergent begin? Yeah, it's a, um, so the, the, it happened, you know, over the course of millennia in different ways and for different reasons, but a for our contemporary period, if you look at uh, someone like Albert Einstein or Niels Bohr or Heisenberg, you know, some of these people that were part of the revolution in physics at the beginning of the 20th century, they were all very much aware and had been trained in the liberal arts. Philosophy is actually guiding their yes. science. I mean, you wouldn't have general relativity had you not had Einstein studying Hume, David Hume and Ernst or Mach, and just the the different the awareness that they had. There's a famous debate between you know ongoing debate, probably one of the biggest debates in in scientific history. At least one of them between Einstein and Bohr about the validity of quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. and it was both on epistemological and philosophical grounds. Niels Bohr had this kind of Eastern view of you know you can have two things being complementary, almost like a contradiction, but not. And then Einstein's like, no, you the the, the world is objective and not dependent. It's not subjective and dependent entirely on the observer. And so you have these this great debate. After World War II, during, the, during World War II, you had a lot of the physics and a lot of the technical resources poured into developing technology mm-hmm. you know, for the atomic weapons and all of that. And there was this division here. All of a sudden it was, look, let's not, I mean, there are other reasons for this too, but all of a sudden we're throwing money at physics to give us technology. Right. And the philosophical aspect of it, and the, that gets kind of divided. So I'd like to ask you a question, you know, based on that and kind of put you on the spot with the first part of the question. And yes, this has two parts. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we have the old term natural philosophy. So I'd love to hear what definition you keep handy for yourself, just, you know, in a, in a useful fashion for science. Like what is science? And then the follow-up question is, can you distinguish for us between science and technique? So for the, the first one, I, I actually point out that we really can't define science. There's something, there's a, there's an ongoing problem and it's, it's a long-term problem of trying to define science Mm -hmm. from, this is in philosophy of science, trying to define science from, say, um, pseudoscience. Mm. You know, so you have this 
debate over whether or not, you know, what, what characterizes science where we, we get all the good approved sciences like chemistry and physics and math versus the unapproved like astrology and UFO sightings and, and even Freudian right. psychoanalysis. And it's called the demarcation problem. It's really, really difficult. I mean, no one I think has really done it yet. Demarcated science from non-science in a way that lets in all the good science and keeps out all the so-called bad mm -hmm. science and vice versa. You know, where you just, you include all the sciences that you want and exclude all the non-sciences, but there's not a definition um, that will, that, that, that's able to do that. The other thing, and this is something I have a lot of my thesis students do. So at New St. Andrews uh, College, we have a senior thesis. And a lot of my students will do some form of why philosophy is needed or a part of science. And inevitably, it's like, okay, what do you count as philosophy? What do you count as science? And it really is, there's not, you're always doing philosophy. I mean, even the moment you say, yeah, science is the most important. Ah, and you're doing philosophy. Right. You're you know, it's like, so, so it's, it's not that simple. And if you have, if, if, if your philosophy isn't somehow um, informed by current, science and the history of science and all of that, because it's all growing up together. And this goes back to your, um, you know, the natural philosophy kind of thing. That's really like the best. It's a, that's just a great way of characterizing it because what it does is it just blurs that distinction. And, mm -hmm. and I think even, but even then it can be problematic because we think that there's this, I mean, there are all kinds of, philosophical questions that are going into science that aren't just about natural. You know, I mean, like you're, again, this goes back to integrating all of it. It's like, well, why are you, why would you even think that mathematics would work? Why would you think that the life is ordered, that there's any sort of order and not like all of these things that were just are baked into us are not obvious ideas, mm -hmm. but we take, you know, it's like, it's kind of like, if you want to know what, water is don't ask the fish right <laughs> basically if you want to know what science or philosophy is don't ask the western people you know it's like it's just we're, we breathe it together it becomes it becomes part of us in a way we don't even but i, I do like going back I, I like the fact that you put freud with the ufos i think if i remember right it was like Car it was carl popper i think was the one who it was like he pointed out it's like look you could just like totally it's unfalsifiable. Like you could, no matter what kind of psychological evidence you have, you can make psychoanalysis fit. I mean, right. I don't know if that's true. That's what he said, but, um, well, do you think, do you think recovering, um, because I do think that sometimes grammar is really important or, or language is important because of, you know, all the implications that come with it. And we always find it difficult to, you know, think about words that don't already have baggage and, and that, but would a recovery of, of a word, a term like natural philosophy, would, uh, would that be a better term than just, you know, this word that science, mm -hmm. the way, you know, the way we've, we've, uh, you know, used it today in so many different ways. It could, as far as, um, you know, one of those things with terms, it's, there's, there's good, there's good and bad to adopting different terms 
you know, they, they have different terms, like natural philosophy in some quarters would be, you know, just seen as, you know, depending on how you first heard that word or what you grew up with, it might, first of all, it might be, I have no idea what you're talking about, which actually could be a good thing, or it could be, well, that seems kind of loony and absolutely non-scientific. You know, that's the pre-scientific view and not real science. Mm-hmm. Um, all that, that, that's just a really long winded way of me saying, I don't know, could be, you know, it might be a good <laughs> Well, w- one of the things in one of your lectures in old Western culture, kind of on this idea, you, you'd make a distinction where in the scientific revolution, we be, we quit thinking about science in a certain way and begin to think of it as mechanical, you know, uh, mechanical science. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that in that Change. Yeah, yeah. So the a, a big change is basically going from, in the way philosophers will ca- uh, characterize this, is that you have during the scientific revolution, um, this getting rid of what's called teleology. Mm-hmm. So like a telos or a purpose in nature that there's some goal or purpose. You know, it does seem like the you know, when you have, um, there seems to be intention behind things. And once you get rid of that intention, you're, well, what they did is they replaced the intention of like, you know, having, uh, you know, an acorn always go into an oak. Well, that's because there's some purpose Mm -hmm. baked into nature and there's some forms or blueprints and all of this. But those were considered okay. Could try to try to do some science on that, you know, like what in in certain ways, and they were having a hard time finding what they call forms. These blueprints, like you know, you could break up the pieces of something, but you'd never find the form. Right. So Galileo and others say, you know what? Why don't we just cool it on that whole telos thing? And I mean, he believed that there what may have been such things forms, teloy or whatever, but you know, we're just not, we're not good at getting at that. So let's limit science to things that we have the tools for, Mm. you know, mathematics. I mean, so now rather than you start focusing on much simpler problems, like a a falling object, Mm. which turns out not to be so simple, but you don't try to say, here's what's making it fall. You say, you know what, I'm going to just mathematically describe it. And now I say just, I mean, that's not, that's no small feat. I mean, even just describing the universe with mathematics without giving any sort of um, attention to the cause, uh, the cause behind the motion, that's, it shouldn't, we shouldn't be able to do that, (laughs) but we do. So it's that, that giving up of teleology and thinking of the world having kind of this purpose to it just being, mechanical now of course that implies that mechanical things don't have a purpose behind them too you know there's a and that's starting to be particularly when we get into contemporary mechanics and quantum mechanics and all that it's not so clear that you can make that hard and fast distinction so almost we've kind of come for full circle and i made a connection here just a second ago for the first time when you were talking about that but 
um, uh, you know, we're going to get off this that we can describe and we're going to, you know, describe it in kind of pragmatically in terms that we can. And I remember reading James Watson's um, recounting of discovering the uh, double helix. And the only reason he went that way from the beginning is because it was too complicated to think about a triple, you know, <laughs> you know, a triple strand, you know, and he said that mm. would be way too complicated. So I, you know, started there, you know, just simply because of, um, I didn't have a way of doing the other one. And I thought that was interesting how we sometimes in our modern thinking about science to think that it is so objective in, in some sense when really there's much of a human element and a philosophical, um, you know, reason behind some of the ways we go or reasons for going about it the way we do. Yeah, totally. And there's a big debate in contemporary physics now over the use, the traditional use of beauty as a guide to truth in physics Interesting. Because when you really look at it and you, you, so Einstein and I mean, he was very clear, look, I go for beautiful theories, you know, even before I have the observable evidence to decide, it's like, I just know that this one's right because mm. it's beautiful. Well, that's, that again, goes all the way back to Plato and this Pythagorean view of the cosmos being mathematical and beautiful. Mm. So you have this notion of symmetry and harmony, kind of like so. Harmonia or um, music was one of the four liberal art, you know, one of the um, the one of the quadrivium, and one of the quadrivia, and that was because there's this notion for them, mathematics and harmony were one in the same. Mm-hmm. So you have harm. By the way, harm. One easy, quick way to think about harmonia is this individual fittingness of the parts into a unity. So you take like a chord, a piano, three notes on a piano, and you make a chord. You know, so you play the chord, you play those three notes. They all fit together. If you're playing the right notes, they sound nice. Mm-hmm. And like you think, okay, well, how do I characterize nice? <laughs> you know, when they <laughs> sound beautiful. But they also, when you're trained, you can still hear the notes individuality. They don't, they don't lose their individuality. They, so this, this unity and diversity sort of thing, this harmonia, similarly with guitar chords and all of that, that ends up being the driver for mathematizing the universe, for the harmony of the spheres, for trying to find, yeah, I, I see all this stuff that looks kind of chaotic, but you know what? There's really mathematical, beautiful harmonious musical order behind it. Now that goes, Einstein is, he's total, totally a Pythagorean or a Platonist in that respect. But now we've gotten to the point where our, we don't have the ability to make experimental observations for our theories. Particularly, so for for you've heard of string theory. Well, that's that's the new and upcoming candidate to replace um, quantum mechanics and general relativity. But there's if there's no why why would a scientist why would hundreds of scientists over decades using countless millions of dollars focus on something that you don't can't have experimental evidence for the argument is the justification is it's beautiful Mm. so you get back to this notion of beauty but then some physicists are saying wait this isn't physics anymore 
something different. Yeah, and why would you why would you think that beauty is a reliable indicator of truth at the level of the subatomic, which had nothing to do with our evolution on the plains of the savannah? That's the argument. You know, it's like, and, and that makes perfect sense. If you really were just, if you know, we're running around being chased on the savannah, you know, or you know, finding food and all of that, and the, the way the subatomic world works doesn't have any evolutionary or natural selection, any pressure on the organism. But we're able to now, lo and behold, we're able to use mathematics as a seeing eye dog of the subatomic world that doesn't even behave like the macroscopic world in which we were supposedly evolved. <laughs> so from their perspective, we would be imposing ourselves and our ideas of beauty on the subatomic instead of receiving beauty. Right. Mm -hmm. And just for our, our listeners, because you can't see us, um, if only you could have seen Joffrey's satisfaction on his face as he listened to <laughs> Dr. Stokes wax so eloquently on that uh, look of satisfaction. So, um, so this, this really does play into and, and, uh, you know, as complicated as this sounds like this could end up getting the, the integrated idea that you're talking about, you can't really divorce math from philosophy, from beauty, from, from harmony, from, you know, the, these things can't really be divorced and actually ever work in these disciplines. Exactly. And, and that's the, that's what's so important is that, and I, I think physicists and scientists need to know this. This is the point that, C.P. Snow made is that, and, and Einstein made this point too. This, if the scientists don't understand the philosophy, they're actually going to be worse scientists. Mm. You know, Einstein says his best, you know, best students, the best scientists, the best physicists are those who understand and are interested in epistemology. Wow. And, you know, the study of knowledge, philosophical study of knowledge, and he makes that very clear. And it's funny how to some some people, some physicists, put the blame of this problem of string theory. Like we're kind of at a in a cul-de-sac, it seems. They put the blame on the fact that the physicists don't know philosophy. Interesting. So you're right. You just you, you, philosophy will make you a better physicist, a better engineer. And and when someone goes, well, well, how is that? Well, it, there's a paradox here because you kind of have to be able to, you have to already understand philosophy and had a liberal arts education in order to really appreciate the benefits and how it makes you think differently and more creatively and outside the box and even more analytically. So trying to motivate someone who's never had a liberal arts education or doesn't have, know the connection between the deep connections between philosophy and physics, let's say, that's hard to, you know, it's almost like, look, just trust me and learn it. And then you'll go, oh yeah, no. And then you can go off and teach it too. That's, that's what we basically are doing with our kids at New St. Andrews College where I have a class. It's a quote unquote math class where we talk about music. We talk about beauty. We talk about physics. I teach them calculus. So you can basically have a discussion about music and what makes music beautiful and end up talking about quarks, 
and the subatomic world and quantum mechanics without changing the subject. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, so, so what this sounds like to me, just listening to you, and this is, this has been beautiful just hearing it. Um, is that, you know, uh, I don't know, a few years ago, uh, Marco Rubio stood up and said, we don't need any more philosophers. And, you know, one of the, con- you know, uh, political conventions, you know, we-, we need STEM and we need to put money into STEM. That sounds to me more than political or, or marketing, you know, in, in terms of a, a pragmatic, you know, narrative that they're telling the public when, you know, the real physicist and the, and the real scientist are actually philosophers or, you I mean, there is no separation of these things. And I think it's the, important before you respond to that, Dr. Stokes, like or just a few seconds ago, you said that this is not just true of phys- physicists. I thought it was really important that you said physicists and engineers. Yeah. Yeah, that very much so. And, um, and it's any STEM discipline and you, any, including, medicine and you know just all all of these things that these sciences that we think are separated they're not and so the someone saying yeah we need we don't need philosophers now granted if you're thinking of philosophers as a certain kind of you know i mean philosophers have a bad name and they've earned it you know i mean like there's (laughs) you know like oh i'm thinking of um Albert Camus, like, well, of course, yeah, that that's uh, granted. And liberal arts. Well, I'm thinking about this liberal arts education that's the gen ed, you know, general education. It's like, okay, given the standard view of philosophy and liberal arts, I get it. But that shows that we need more genuine liberal arts and genuine STEM education. Yeah. And, and we, we were talking about this before the, the episode, but, um, and, and I mentioned it a moment ago, a lot of our language is, is so, you know, laden with baggage that it's really difficult when, mm-hmm. when somebody hears you talking about the liberal arts, these things that you just described are what they right. imagine, right? right? And this is not at all what we're talking about when we're talking about traditional or classical or however you want to describe it, true liberal arts uh, education. Yeah, if you, if, again, when, when we were talking before this, I, I, I give two talks to incoming freshmen at NSA on what the liberal arts are. And the second talk is basically just about physics. I mean, we really just go through it and I haven't changed, changed the subject from liberal arts. So I devote half, actually more than half of my time with these incoming freshmen talking to them about liberal arts by giving them a discussion about everything from Plato to Newton to Hume to Einstein to string theory. I, I have very little, I mean, that's the, I don't teach freshmen other than, and I don't have contact with freshmen other than that. So I've got two hours with these students that I need to impart with them what I think the liberal arts are and what NSA thinks the liberal arts are. And I spend so much of it on physics. You know, you as as I listen to, to all of this, I mean, this this is going to turn into a three hour podcast if <laughs> Scott and I indulge ourselves in all the questions that I, I know we want yeah. you to to unpack. But I think this is probably the moment to segue into uh, our the sex book. And you're you you have done what you've just been describing. 
in calculus for everyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the calculus book, the, um, the textbook, I, that just so you know, that wasn't something that I'm not the kind of person that will do math problems or Rubik's cubes or that's just not my bent. I'm much more into music and, so you in and, and again that seems we we think oh yeah no i totally know you're that kind of person no 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 that, that <laughs> there there's these are all of a piece and but there's a certain writing a by the way for anybody out there wanting to write a math textbook <laughs> before forewarned. There's a is, bunch of people lined there up are to do a lot, It's a lot more work than you think. No, but I think, no, trust me. It's all, no matter how much work you think it is. It's, it's more than it's that. It's more than that. <laughs> now you, you, uh, as, as you get into talking about this, you dedicate this to Morris Klein, uh, or you mentioned mm -hmm, yeah. the, the dedication here. Yeah. To Morris Klein, who changed my view of mathematics and my view of the mathematics of change. And, uh, and I think this is, you know, part of where you're going with this, but, uh, can you talk about that as well? Yeah. The, um, so base, so the, the calculus textbook is in some ways just an example of what, how I think math ought to be reformed. And so it's just one, one example, rather than me telling people, always here's how we should change math pedagogy and the two and, and by the way there are two ways that i would change it two main ways one is i would include it its historical context which doesn't mean watered down by the way you know oh well, just it, you're still doing lots of problems the other the other thing so one is historical context second is fewer concepts and the concepts that you do choose you put them in the right order mm. and calculus is a, just a great way of showing how this can be done because basically what i'm doing in calculus for everyone is showing how calculus is basically newton's fulfillment of plato's dream and part of the liberal arts because it's part of Plato's dream. dream. I mean, like that's, that, that's, that's a big point there. And focusing on the core of calculus before you get into a lot of the details. Now I'm all for getting into the, all the minutia and details, but if you don't have, you haven't laid the foundation for those, you can mistake all the minutia and detail for the core or vice versa. And you just, you don't even know where you are situated and wh which way is up. It's kind of like if I were to say, all right, I know you've never heard of basketball, you know, like you go to some alien culture, you don't know basketball, but I'm going to teach you, you know, here, here's the, here's what it is. You got the sphere, you bounce it. And I bounce it a few times and I say, now we're going to learn some plays, right? You go, whoa, 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 wait a second. No, what you, what you need to do is if you're going to learn how to play basketball well, you had better be able to dribble it under any circumstance in your sleep. You know, that kind of thing. Like, you need to be able to focus on that. Now, granted, that's not all you need to do. 
But if you try to do things before you do that, you're just going to get, you're going to confuse things. And that's just not the way we learn. I mean, if there's one thing that we've done in the last, I don't know, few decades is we have learned better ways to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And too many, too many concepts poorly chosen in the wrong order will just make the rest of it confusing and you'll never catch up. Oh, basketball and aliens. Are you fresh <laughs> off of seeing Space Jam <laughs> too? <laughs> Uh, so, it, it sounds like you, like you're telling us that a fundamental part of the foundation, if you'll forgive the pun, but you know, that uh, if, if for studying physics is the philosophy and history of it. Yes, that's not the only thing, but it's it's necessary but not sufficient. And that, and again, when you get to calculus, knowing that there are main, three main concepts. Limit, derivative, integral, they're all wrapped up in the fundamental theorem of calculus. I wish I just, someone would have hammered that into my head when I was taking all these high-level calculus courses, or even at the very, you know, even just Calc 1, it would be nice to just have those categories and know that when I'm doing the derivative of this really complicated function, this trick that I've learned to take the derivative for this particular function isn't necessarily, that's just peculiar to that function. And it's not necessarily part of calculus in general. I mean, it is obviously part of calculus, but it's peculiar to that function. And knowing the, knowing where things are peculiar to these individual functions versus here's what calculus is, helps me to understand the things that are peculiar to those functions. You know, this... Uh this presentation of calculus is is really compelling uh, to families. Uh, and so representing both Roman Rhodes, who published this book, but then also Kepler and you know Katie Harms offers a class that uses this textbook. I've you know I've been able to talk to a lot of families about this. And it's really been it's been fascinating to watch how how people really kind of grab onto the idea and they want to handle it and turn the idea around and look at it from different angles. Uh, but one of the angles, uh, the the way I I address it, and you can sharpen me up here and and uh, and you know unpack it a little bit so my spiel can get better. But um, you know, so I, I I tell families who ask about the the level of math because the approachability is very attractive to to a lot of people. But you know sometimes I do find myself occasionally saying, well, what this isn't is calculus for dummies, right? Right. Uh, well, then, so what is it? Like just just answer, you know, answering from the point of view of you see Joffrey at a table talking to a family, you know what should he say? Right. So when you think of some, you know the the calculus for dummies or something like that, it's 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 a watered down version where you. How about this? When it comes to what we're what we're actually doing in calculus, it's a lot more detail and. Sp- spending a lot more time at the beginning so that you can actually understand mm. the what's coming afterwards. So even if uh, the student never went on to um, another, take another stand, you know, kind of quote unquote standard calculus course, what this course does is this student would come away with knowing exactly what the core of calculus is and 
also having a humanities course about philosophy and the liberal arts and how calculus is like the Shakespeare of math. I mean, seriously, we, the fact that we would include Shakespeare or Homer in a liberal arts education and not Euclid in calculus. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just, that would, that's crazy. That doesn't make sense on on both sides of it. Well, uh, to change metaphors for just a moment and and tell me maybe I'm maybe I'm misrepresenting uh, this and and I don't want to misrepresent it. But when when I played um, junior high football and I'm talking about American football, uh, Joffrey. <laughs> when I played, uh, no, so when when I played in junior high, um, our coach um, he I mean, we went through these drills and basically. Every position had a particular function, and that's its only function, always. So a guard always did this. Now, once you had that down, once we had these fundamentals down, once we understood how what the object of the game was, we had every once in a while, then it's like, okay, in this play, the guard is going to pull, okay? We have, you know, in this play, you're going to have an end around, you know, in this play. And so when you started, you know, making deviations from the fundamentals of what it was, you still understood, you had this holistic concept of what game we were playing right, and right. why, and, and even why we were doing something different with the position, you know, in this particular play. Right. And so as you described that, that was the image that came to my mind. And I know you use basketball. A, yeah, that's a great, that, yeah, no, that's, that's exactly, that's, that's a great example, illustration. Yeah. Well, Mitch, thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us today. And before we leave, I have one very difficult question for you to answer. Um, So, you know, Joffrey put you on the spot earlier, but (laughs) what do you say to that kid who says, why do I need to know math or calculus or whatever? I'm never going to use this in in my life. I'm going to be a poet or I'm going to play basketball or something. Why do I need this? What, what do you say to that? Yeah, no, that's a, the, if you want to be a poet and you don't understand calculus and where it was set and the reasons for it, Mm -hmm you're really not going to be nearly as good as a, of a poet and really be able to plumb the depths of you know, a lot of times, po- you know, if you're writing poetry, it's about the human experience, about our interactions, our inner experience, our interactions with the exterior world and all of that. And if you don't understand the history of philosophy, which in many respects is the history of mathematics and science, you're going to you're going to have a lot fewer colors to paint with, so to speak. You're just not part of poetry is, is having that depth of experience and being able to communicate that. But if you don't have the depth, there's nothing to communicate. So you're going to be, and that, that can be said for, for so many different, you know, not just poetry. And here's the, here's the thing. You do not learn mathematics so that you can do it later. That's good. Like if you ended up having no more, you know, I don't know what, I don't even know what kind of world this would be, but like you had no more STEM, you would still have, you still need to teach physics and mathematics and calculus because that's the way the world is made. And that's central to the way the world is now. And it's philosophical and intellectual history and cultural history. 
so it's the one of the things that we were going to have to figure out and and not be embarrassed by is yeah you know what you're you're that's fine if you don't use it we're not teaching you because you're going to use it yeah we're teaching it so that you understand the world how god made it and how you fit into it well, that's the same answer that we give in some ways, you know, when you're talking about some of the philosophical questions, you know, Socrates would raise a question that really couldn't be answered in the way that we would want this definitive kind of answer, but then begin to strip away all the things that it isn't. So we get a little bit closer and it's not so much coming to a conclusion about what the answer is, but it's working through it that actually gives you the knowledge. That's where the education actually happens. Very much and so. I, and I sense that that's the same here with this, you know, with yeah. calculus. And, and, and to be sure, a lot of the content is still important, but you're right, the method and the way of thinking and the, the process of going through it, and it's not just to, end, not just to like do mental push-ups. Yeah. It's actually to think in a certain way I mean, Plato, the reason he, you know, one of the reasons mathematics was so important is because it helped you to abstract, you know, in the Republic, he's looking for the, for the idea of justice. Okay. What's the definition of justice? And you start looking at all these different particular cases of things that are just and unjust. And, but that's not, that's not a definition. And so that's not necessarily going to help you. to, to be able to understand what justice is, you need to be able to abstract from all those things. Mm-hmm. Now, that process of abstraction is what Plato, one of the reasons he emphasized mathematics so much. Yeah. And we could use, you know, it'd be nice for us to be able to think about categories like that better. Male, female, you know, like justice, injustice. You know, I mean, those are, those are concepts that, and if you don't know how to think about what, a concept is, then you're going to get some of them muddled, and some of them are really important concepts. Yes, especially in our modern world. Yeah. <laughs> so sign up for Mrs. Katie Harms' philosophy class entitled <laughs> Calculus <laughs> for Everyone. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Stokes, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. And, Appreciate uh, it. Yeah, it was a good time.